0: Welcome to the FEG Insight Bridge. This is Greg Dalek, Head of Research and CIO at FEG. This show spans global markets and institutional investments through conversations with some of the world's leading investment, economic, and philanthropic minds to provide insight on how institutional investors can survive and even thrive in the world of markets and finance. As we all stay home to do our part to flatten the curve, our current series, Dallas on Download, highlights speakers who are originally going to be featured at our Dallas Investment Symposium. That was canceled due to the coronavirus. This limited series will offer insights across a variety of asset classes and styles, including energy markets, credit markets, value investing, and biotech. For today's show, our guest speaker, Staley Cates of Southeastern Asset Management, is a big music fan and a native of Memphis, Tennessee. Therefore, I could not think of a better title for today's podcast than the old Elvis song, Steamroller Blues, especially when talking about fundamental active management and value investing. All right, big FEG welcome to Staley Cates of Southeastern Asset Management. Staley, thanks for joining us today. If if you wouldn't mind, if you could introduce yourself and Southeastern as we start.
1: Sure. Well, Greg, thanks a lot for having me and indirectly us. I am vice chairman, which means pretty much nothing uh, of Southeastern Asset Management. And we're also, we manage the Longleaf Partners mutual fund. So some clients know us as Southeastern and some as Longleaf. I've been here 34 years and the firm was founded 45 years ago. We are a, uh, an all equity shop As you know, we're in the value camp, which I guess the best way to explain our own cut at that would be a Benjamin Graham mindset of how you look at Mr. Market and how you try to take advantage of that. And we'll of course talk about that more later. If you looked at our most descriptive terms, we talk about being long-term and concentrated and engaged those mostly speak for themselves. I think the long-term part is super rare these days in terms of measured holding periods and how people come with with a horizon, how they approach the work. That seems to be more and more rare. Uh, We are concentrated and our engaged adjective is really about just treating these businesses like we own them ourselves and trying to be good stewards and good owners and active participants in the process. Our most important feature would be our alignment. We think this is the best in the industry, at least we don't know of a better version, but that is ever since we've been formed and especially ever since we had the mutual funds as a vehicle, we require all employees, not even just the investment people, but all employees to do all of their equity investing in our own funds. That does not mean we will be right or great, but it means we are properly aligned and it's it's going to hurt us first if we do a poor job. And so what that has meant over that many years of compounding and doing that is that We as a shareholder group, including our foundations, we are our largest shareholders. So we come at this as principals, not agents. That kind of, that colors everything we do.
0: Alignment is important, definitely.
1: Hey, Staley, thanks
0: for that introduction. And in your introduction, you had said that you all have been around since the 1970s. So that means you've seen a lot of different market environments. I think we'd be remiss if we didn't ask you just give it on when this is recorded during a pandemic to compare and contrast this current environment to other environments that Southeastern has invested through.
1: Well, uh, you know, I guess starting with the least analogous, I mean, I think of the, the crash of 87 was kind of up there in terms of speed with this one, but in no other way. There was not an economic problem. There was obviously not a pandemic And it was the reverse of earnings yields and bond yields. You know, earnings yields were half of bond yields. That was way out of whack. That got corrected. That's the opposite of today's situation. I think, and, and and being master of the bleeding obvious, I think, you know, the speed part is unprecedented. The pandemic driven part feels unprecedented in the U.S., but it's really not in Asia. We've had, including Ken, who runs our Asian office, you know, we've had some of our principals live through SARS and MERS. And so there are some precedents on that, even though it did nothing like the market destruction this is doing. And then past that, I think I would take a combo of some of these different crashes. I mean, the, the Internet bubble obviously featured this narrow tech leadership, although, I, you know, I, I don't think the valuations are as crazy on some of the big tech things now as they might have been in the Internet bubble. But there's definitely a a common feel on that, including versus value then on 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 g s c you know that feels a little bit similar in some of this financial madness. I mean every day there are government and fed headlines about stimulus and free money and all the stuff that we did you know that q e stuff started. that's also not quite as bad i mean like at the, at that point we would talk to cFOs every day who couldn't get their cash. it was locked up and Y'all and we would have clients who were like, you know, we're going to 25% cash, even if we're a long-term endowment. And all kind of, I think that financial craziness might've been a bit worse in GFC, but you do see some of this now. And we do have a lot of conversations with CFOs, do get into things like, tell us about your daily liquidity. And are we safe on that? You know, conversations you didn't have to have at other times, even in corrections or pullbacks. I guess the last thing on this would be that, Another kind of unique feature has been that the leaders going into this, which had created this whole growth versus value thing and even fed the active versus passive thing, their leadership has been maintained. Nothing's really changed. If anything, it's torqued it up a notch such that the value gap that we'll talk about more is still there. If anything, you know, it it just accentuated in the last couple of months.
0: Being a fundamental active manager, doing deep research, how the heck do you ascertain what a company is worth when about a third of the S&P has withdrawn its earnings guidance? How do you know what you're buying?
1: Well, it is a great question. And for a meaningful or major slug of that universe, you don't and you can't. This is to us a benefit of when we talk about being concentrated, which follows the whole Buffett and Munger coaching on I love it when Munger says sit on your ass. I love it when both of those guys say you don't have to swing at every pitch. We're gonna own, you know, 20 to 30 names. And so we don't have to play in every sector. We don't have to make a call on so many of these things. So to your question, there are plenty of things where we say too hard bucket and or that's just unforecastable. Because going to two other categories, what we can do is we can look at companies where they are either doing just fine through this pandemic and through this economic depression slash recession, or uh, they weirdly some of them may even benefit from it. Uh, we bought Process, which is a way to own ten cent. Ten cent just reported yesterday, an incredible earnings. I mean, they they actually benefited from this. Obviously, those are rare birds, but some of those are out there where that's category one of they're fine. You know, and, and, and your analysis is more business as usual. There's a second category where it's definitely not fine in this pandemic and this GDP crash, but these are trophy assets that have incredibly high odds of being there long-term so that it's just not a huge leap to go forward. So you can throw away the next two years of results and you don't have to make a guess on when things turn and when we have a vaccine and all those extremely important things but you're saying from year three and beyond, these are such great assets, we will be more than fine. Those are the two categories we're buying, both with our, the fresh cash that we had going into this, and then with the upgrading of the portfolios that you would expect us to do during.
0: Yeah, that makes, that makes sense. We talked about this pre-call that the two client questions we get all the time on equity is one, does active management still work? And then two, if active management still works, does value work? And I want to put you on the spot here a little bit because I know you're a big music fan. What song title do you think accurately describes your feelings on active management and then also value?
1: (laughs) Well, I'll start on the active and then I will segue into value because they're definitely related. The song titles definitely turn me towards as a long as a longtime Memphian, native Memphian, towards Soulsville, which is the district that had Stax record label and the High record label in the Royal Studios. And since it's all about waiting and delayed gratification, and there are very few of us value dinosaurs left, I'll shout out both Stax and High Slash Royal. So Stax would be way to the midnight hour with Wilson Pickett where we're promising a bunch of good stuff later <laughs> and uh, tired of being alone from Al Green. We definitely feel alone. And Al Green did that in Soulsville at Royal and that's pretty fitting. So I can't set out a better uh, music area than Soulsville. I like um, it. I like- so start starting with the active and I will not sing a song here for the, <laughs> just for the mercy of your clients. It please don't. Um, I guess the first thing is, of course, we'll talk our own book here on active, but I would actually start saying there's definitely a role for passive. So everything I say will be in the context of there's a good balance of those things, you know, not trying to be uh, the zealot about active. But on the passive part, John Bogle was a patron saint of our business. He's actually a very good friend to our firm, even though we had different investing religions, our principles on, shareholder alignment we're very similar on governance all that stuff that everyone you know would agree matters but where we would have disagreed with him is is even he would have said as the, as the as the leader of all passive you know even he said there's a time when it could go too far and be unhealthy but he pegged where indexation was indexation was at like mid 40s or something in the 40s we would submit and y'all would have better data on this than we would, but we would submit it's gone way beyond that because that doesn't count ETFs that are functioning as in index you know, surrogates. Uh, that doesn't count, especially shadow indexers. If a money manager has a super low active share and they have over 100 stocks, they're just trying to keep the fee and that is a shadow index. So like, we would submit that this passive and indexing thing has gone way further than the advocates say and that has just meant that many more people buying without any regard to what they're paying for that or why it's just mindless you know jim grant had great stuff on mindless buying and and how that's happened that's that's just enormous so then um part of this existential active versus passive is active has of course underperformed even though it's done that historically that's done that over a long period i mean in other long periods of time but i think the the current version of why active doesn't work has to do with quant power, i.e. they're saying this time it's different that active will never come back because the quant power out there is so so widespread and large that it has beat out any inefficiencies, that there just aren't enough inefficiencies for an active manager to make a living, in, and if so, it's, it's just gonna be too risky. So taking that further, couple of things about the quant power one would be that just like the weather forecast that we all rely on the quant power has meant that the next few days and maybe the next week are incredibly on target in the forecasting because of what science and the math can do but the weather forecast looking at a few years is totally meaningless not because the quant power isn't there but because there are too many variables in that equation so the same thing applies to investing. The, the quant power, the research that, that we see and, and, and often use, that usually has to do with an edge in this quarter, maybe this year, but that is still short-term stuff like the weather forecast. It does not help the three-year forecast such that every name we have is going to have an arbitrage of short-term versus long-term, and the quant power doesn't change that or, or take that away. And then another thing about this that's really timely in the pandemic is there are so many incredibly interesting examples during the pandemic of crazy events that show that fear and greed have not disappeared, even with the quant power and the clinical statistical analysis that's out there. We'd look at Williams, which is something we bought, the pipeline company, the most stable cash flows possible. And it's tied to natural gas units not prices and it has nothing to do with all this oil stuff and that stock went down by half Uh, it went from 19 to 9 and literally was such a panic moment at the company that they put in a poison pill because after pipelines have sold for low to mid teens multiples of cash flow for forever it feels like this had gone to three and a half that makes no sense they still can't really explain why it happened and it has bounced back since then, but where you know, the clinical efficiency and the lack of, you know, fear and greed was was not had not disappeared in that specific example. And there are other ones like EXOR correlating with Italy, which in turn is correlating with the coronavirus. That doesn't have anything to do with XOR's NAV or none of that. So long winded way to say we do think inefficiencies will be there because they get back to fear and greed and those emotions have not been repealed. Uh, in psychology
0: gotcha so, so, so i was going to say so, so to kind of summarize that i mean there's the you mentioned that i love that clinical versus emotional but earlier you also said i think active management's really a bet on time horizon you have to have a longer time horizon to beat the machines yes when you get to value investing how long of a time horizon do we need for it to work
1: that is the great question, but that's also the frustrating part of being a value investor. And we are not naturally patient, patient people, <laughs> so this is not like a. This has nothing to do with our personality traits, but the question can't be answered, which is why it does require patience. You never know how you'll get paid. The payoff patterns. Again, you guys would have the better data, but it's something of the ilk of. 90% of your payoffs happen in like 10% of the trading days. That's just what it is. If you could, if you knew what the catalyst would be and how you'd get paid, it wouldn't be a 50 cent dollar. You can't have it both ways. That's why I mentioned the, the Buffett part versus the Graham part. That's why when you don't know how long it's going to take, you've got to own a great quality asset with great managers because they've got to be building the value while you wait and that way you're not just only in this time arbitrage game. Your value is growing. And that gives you the comfort on not knowing when the payoff's gonna happen. And then the last part of that is this is why your partners are everything. You better have great partners running it for you. They've got to care more. They've got to own even more. They will figure out what those catalysts are and how to get you paid. And that's the other, you know, that's the only other reason we can kind of afford to wait without knowing the answer to that question.
0: A couple of folks have, have made some interesting comments that value has been discovered and it's been mined. And it's been mined by Smart Beta and it, it no longer exists as a risk premium And there's others who will talk about metrics and that value does not include intangibles, the economies change, we've moved to big tech, and basically, this time it's different. How would you react to those?
1: Well, first off, those questions are, are, those are eternal. I mean, those those questions do come around every day or so, and the growth versus value questions are always there. So my answer here is not, uh, it's not original, and it's something we've talked about in other cycles. But the first would be kind of a false distinction between growth and value in that To do what I described, to buy a great company, especially because this is all of our own money, we don't have other ways to diversify. Now, they don't look at that on the surface, excuse me, or else they would not be cheap. So I don't mean blatant, obvious quality, because that's the kind of stuff that's 25 to 30 times usually. We do demand quality. That means growth. We just want to steal that. We just want to pay a multiple for that that's way, way below where the market is pricing that. So that does lead to non-traditional metrics. So when we say we're buying value, that is not simply price to book. It is not simply low PEs. You know, any other kind of easy way to measure it kind of goes by the wayside. If we have a timber company, we're able to buy Southern mature, fantastic timber right now at a thousand bucks an acre. We have no idea, though, how that's going to come through the P&L. You may not want to harvest it during this depression. You may let the tree grow and get the pricing later. You know That's not a simple P.E. calculation. Um, there are things that I mentioned, like a process, which is a way to buy $0.10, cent, which looks like a high apparent P.E., but the real price to free cash flow, and this would be also true of Alphabet. By the time you take out important non-earning assets, you're paying a very low price to free cash flow multiple for the great businesses. So the answer is more complex, it is more case by case. This gets to us kind of doing stuff by hand in quotes, instead of just broad screens with thousands of stocks and very traditional metrics.
0: And I think that's, I think that's really important. Maybe that speaks to not having a narrow view of value and trying to find value wherever it is. But to, to the point of, of the, just the economy changing, you all have invested in technology when there's value, but is value because of the way it, it often is is calculated, just not viable in a new economy where there's duopolies and high profit margins and is, is Microsoft and Facebook and Amazon, are they going to take over the world? And you know, nothing's going to stop them and value is going to just linger and die and not ever rebound.
1: I think it again goes company by company. Our own answer, I mean, different value managers will say different things about whether they will invest in technology. And instead of a yes, we will or a no, we won't. Ours always gets down to the terminal value of the company, i.e. if you're doing a DCF on any of the companies you just said and you do a terminal value, can you feel a very high degree of confidence that that company will look like something you can sink your teeth into and understand? So so I mentioned that we own Alphabet. That's because even though search will look different and it'll have AI components to it and more voice and different forms of search, we think enough that there's a high enough probability that search is there in year seven of our DCF that that is something that's That's real and valuable and worth a big multiple and we're paying way, you know, we've paid way less than that in the market to buy Alphabet. And so that's a yes, go forward. Now, other things have, you know, Apple's a little bit different thing where it's it's it is dominant. It's more about the devices and the ecosystem. That's a little bit tough for us to to say, what is that going to look like forever, especially non U.S. versus Android and can they maintain those massively high margins? That Those might be questions we put in the too hard bucket. But I don't think there's a, there's just not a one size fits all answer to that. And this gets back to being risk averse and understanding how durable the cash flows are. And you don't have to, you don't have to uh, invest in any of this.
0: Gotcha. I, I know a lot of the the way that you extract value is just buying it right. and and being patient. You also have several other tools in your, your toolkit that you'll use occasionally talking with management, being a little bit more active at times. When do you need to do that? And maybe you can give an example of, of when that's, when that's worked and maybe your style of engagement.
1: It starts with this mentality of ownership, being aligned with great partners so that on step one, if we've picked the best partner possible, as we, as we try to do, there may be very little engagement necessary or required now we'll be in constant touch with the management we'll learn tons of stuff from meeting with them and asking them questions and learning the business over time but we may not do anything on the quote engagement front cuz we don't need to there's not a lot we can tell fred smith to do on you know how to run fedex but then then it becomes this decision tree where if we've made if we've made a mistake on our people assessment, or maybe we were right on day one, but things went wrong later, then we owe it to our shareholders to address that. Now, if there's, that gets to a part of the decision tree where if we can't accomplish what we want to accomplish, we just sell and leave. We just submit the mistake on the people and leave and sell. But if we think it's a fixable item, then we do get engaged. That is typically a flavor of not kind of the hedge fund activist style of. Very public, angry letters, all that stuff. This is behind the scenes, behind closed doors, constructive in the context of being long term holders and not trying to make management look bad, but just trying to get what we want. That usually ends up with involvement with the deep involvement with the management and the board and often getting board members. So, like activists do their thing often running proxy fights, trying to get directors. I think we usually get directors in a much more quiet way and we have a pretty high batting average on on doing that. Taking that a step further though, I think another difference in how we do things is if we put someone on a board, we start with asking the company, what do you what do you want? What would you find most helpful? There was a day back in level three, which level three was the best fiber company that's now CenturyLink, which has the best fiber, even though that's hidden under a legacy phone company. But in the level three days, we wanted to add a board member and the, but we said, you know, we prefaced it with what do you need? And they had this incredible fiber network and great engineering, but their sales performance, just the performance of the actual sales, not marketing, was poor and they knew it. It's like we need some sales expertise. And so the best person we could think of was Mike Glenn, who ran the sales effort for Fed back to FedEx, but he he ran that and he did it incredibly well. And FedEx is all about physical networks. Level 3 and CenturyLink are about fiber networks. So Mike made a ton of sense, took that board seat, and happily now has just is about to become the chairman, actually, uh, at CenturyLink. But that that's different than a lot of activists will put on their own attack dogs on the board. And that's really to serve them. That also ties up your trading. That limits your flexibility because you're then subject to the same trading rules. So that's just, for a lot of reasons, not how we would go at it. Gotcha.
0: That makes makes a lot of sense. In our recent education piece to our clients, we talked about buying what others are selling. What is the market selling and what opportunities are out there now that you all are investigating and perhaps investing in?
1: This circles back a bit to our value discussion where, uh, and also in y'all's piece, you highlighted this, And I mentioned it earlier as well, that value has underperformed again so much that if you're avoiding the big index stuff, often avoiding uh, even the U.S., like the non-U.S. bargains are better, which we can talk about more later. But it's the same playbook where we were of we are able to buy some incredible bargains that haven't been in this beneficiary of index mania and free money that if we first look at this as a composite. I think it's the most instructive thing, and that is that normally our bucket of stocks sell for, call it 11 times free cash flow versus the market selling for 16 times. And that is that is not coincidentally uh, lining up with, we talk in our parlance of price to value ratios, our overall composite, which again, we may be wrong on one or two companies. The market, especially because the S&P earnings are down, the market P in the US, not, not, not overseas, but the, the US P is now over 20. So this cold spring effect is even more in play. This is why our performance sucks this year as our nine to 10 times we already thought was cheap is now say seven and a half. But this cold spring has wound up even more. And so I say all that because what some of the stuff we've already owned, we've added to, and, and we're able to do that at these incredibly low free cash flow multiples. And this is a pretty historic difference between a market that is very scary at an over 20 times. That's also a little bit back to our index discussion, where if you're just buying the index, that may feel better. Um, and this whole passive versus active, but you're buying a multiple way over 20x uh, if the s p is going to earn, say, $130. And there's a lot of risk with that. And there's still a lot of unforeseen things that we've talked about on the risk front. That's pretty scary to us.
0: All right, let's take it to the next level. Yes, on a valuation perspective, value as an investment style looks pretty inexpensive. But if you look below the surface, indexes are made up of different sectors. Some are expensive, some are cheap. And some right now have some pretty dicey outlooks, whether it's financials or energy or retail, cyclicals. So where within the value universe are you seeing opportunities, whether it's on the sector side or the company side?
1: Well, within the ones you mentioned, I think I'd start with financials. um, And I would also split those into some categories, like the kind of financials that are big, heavy capital, heavy banks. Those are not of interest to us because those are leveraged leveraged by their nature and, and opaque and they're a commodity. And so like, we've just never done a lot of that. I guess three areas we'd be thinking a lot of the money managers are incredibly cheap because people are simple, simply extrapolating their terrible results driven by the market you know, over the last couple of quarters or the last couple of years, really. Then I would say the wealth managers have gotten interesting because they're kind of down with the money managers, but that's a different proposition. That's managing somebody's tax and family situations and all kinds of stuff that's more than just, are they beating the market this quarter? That's just a different proposition. And I guess thirdly would be the insurance part where insurance the insurance group has just been hammered. Some of that has to do with how's this business interruption thing gonna play out and I could go to the Supreme Court and pandemic within policies and all that. And we're gonna avoid some of the most controversial parts of that, but other parts of the insurance world have just been busted because of that whole group doing, uh, doing poorly. Then, uh, you mentioned energy and retail. We've actually, we're actually avoiding those on the margin just because we can do so much higher quality stuff. It's it's not debating that there may be statistical bargains in there, but when I mentioned, we can buy so much better quality, we'd rather have incredible quality and as well as value. So that, that has kind of ruled those out. And then finally, within the the travel and the hotel part, some of that, some of the travel stuff, some of it like airlines is just flat out in the too hard bucket. Some of the travel stuff would get back to what I mentioned earlier about the forecast are just too hard. And if, if the appeal of the stock has to do with you nailing it on when travel really comes back, then kind of forget it. But the ilk we would like would be something like, like a Hyatt and a GE. So in the case of Hyatt, that's more about franchise fees. If you, look at, if you look at Hilton and Marriott, those still sell at very healthy multiples of cash flow, because even if it takes five years to, to get people traveling, taking those franchise fees off the top is gonna be a good business. Well, we can buy Hyatt at big discounts to Hilton and Marriott, and even though Hyatt is not as good on the reservation system and the points, hotel developers will tell you that they're going to grow more off of their small base and it's a very good brand. So that can, we don't have to make a case, is this going to take 18 months, two years, whatever. That's one way to go at it. Then on the aviation, you know, the airlines would be terrifying and too hard for a lot of reasons, but there is going to be airline travel over a very long period and GE Aviation, their jet engine business, even if it never comes back to where it is, that is going to be a razor blade, albeit much lower than anyone would have thought. But that that is going to be a great business. Culp has done an incredible job. You also get GE Health, which is a stealth way to 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 address all the needs in society, especially now on the healthcare front. So those would be our, our best ways to go at the uh, travel and hotel part.
0: I like that. GE uh, Aviation is headquartered here in Cincinnati, Ohio. So I know plenty of folks who who work there. So. Uh... I I agree. Out of the U.S. overseas, and we, you talked about just that things are a little bit more attractive as you get further away from from the U.S. Maybe we can talk about that, and maybe start in Asia. and And I've had the uh, the pleasure of visiting your Singapore office, and that's also been a a little bit of a, a hot spot. So what's what's Asia look like, and is is it? How are the management teams dealing with this? Are they better prepared? As you mentioned, they've, they've been through SARS. Are you seeing any recovery taking place there that may give us hope for the U.S.?
1: So starting with that, la- the, the last part first, uh, there is hope in all that. And, and as far as how they've handled it, the, whether it's talking to all those teams, with our and our office has been there 25 years, so we've known... The network there is very built out in very, you know, long time. And so we are seeing them come back, as you probably have read. And we also see that through other investees of how the economies are coming back strongly. They're back, you know, they're they're back in business. The travel thing's interesting in that the domestic travel in China is picking up sequentially pretty strongly. The international travel for obvious reasons is still kind of a zero. The other interesting thing is, as they kind of go, and we were we are all wondering, and I don't think we bring any special insight, everyone's wondering what a second leg to this whole thing might look like, so it's interesting to note that in their case, even though you read about the second wave and they're locking some stuff back down, that that's really on a, a very small number of cases, so there will still be brush fires, there will still be re-lockdowns and stuff like that, but when people are talking about a W, it's not like the right side of the W has been so far at least anything like the left side of it. I think the investing opportunity for us is so big there because it's more detached than normal from the US. Now, part of this is driven by US China relations getting bad and I mean being bad and probably getting worse. Like this is a this all gives us a bad outlook for free trade in relation to GDP. This is not a happy story on on how we're all working together you know globally but you just have to factor that in as you invest over there so one of our favorite ways to take advantage of all this is Macau it's so incredibly misunderstood on so many levels in the piece you did for your clients y'all talked about not selling stuff that's down and investing for the next thing and China was in both of those buckets in your piece And to me, Macau is by far the best way to capitalize on that. Part of the misunderstanding is that it's listed in Hong Kong, but it's economic. So so it's traded down with that. It's incredibly cheap, but its economic future actually not only has very little to do with Hong Kong and the drama that's going to keep playing out there, that's just not where their players are going to come from. They're going to come mostly from mainland China, even though it's listed there. And if anything, the Chinese government will treat Macau as a government even more favorably the more that Hong Kong acts up, which seems like that's just going to keep getting worse and worse. The interesting thing, uh, another thing about Macau, interesting as an analyst, is that the US-centric view will compare Macau IBITDA to Las Vegas IBITDA. And there's a massive math mistake in that, in that the acronym IBITDA has T for taxes in it. But in Macau, you've already paid your tax. They pay the government 39% off the top. So EBITDA is actually after tax, and there's very little capex associated with it. So almost all of that EBITDA is free cash flow. Definitely not Las Vegas, where you not only have to pay tax, but you have a whole lot of non-gaming, more hotel-looking things that you have, to, you know, you have to spend a lot of renovation capex on. So even even how Macau is measured is is off base until you really do the work. And then the final thing is. That people who don't spend the time there and dig in, they think of Macau as high rollers, VIPs, junkets. The the you know the Chinese government crackdown that's big on headlines and revenues, but that's just almost meaningless on EBITDA because those same junkets they take all the margin. So a, a player coming on a junket, we really don't care what the corruption crackdown means or doesn't mean, or or if they're laundering money or not at that level. Because that is a single-digit margin EBITDA player. The 40% EBITDA margin player is that mass Chinese, either newly wealthy or newly middle class, just come into play as they did in Vegas 20 years, starting 20 years ago, and that they call that the mass or the premium mass player. That's where all the cash flow is. That's literally over 90% of Macau's cash flow. So we're we're sitting out a bet that that I think Mr. Market thinks we're making. So we're paying six times free cash flow for that, which is crazy against, you know, market PEs or market price to free cash flows, usually up over 20 for something with those kind of barriers to entry. So great opportunity over there if you take the time and and pick the rifle shot.
0: Yeah. I've actually been to Macau and I've, I've seen that mass consumer and there's just a heck of a lot more of them than than those high rollers. They come over by boat and now by car. And th- th- that's that's where they they make their money and not just yep. the one or two whales that, that come over. So uh, that's yep. that's pretty interesting. What um, if we go to Europe, what, what's is there anything to do in, in Europe? Europe's maybe a, kind of the, the biggest mess here. And they, they also have political issues, What is the future of Europe? Although they have great companies, are they investable and is there visibility?
1: Well, there's so many parts to that as you know. Like you've got, um, if you start in the North, you've got Brexit adding on even more to all the chaos. That did throw us an opportunity in the form of Domino's UK, which is extremely interesting because on the Domino's part, pizza of course brings to mind, it's, it's fine during the pandemic, but more specifically to that name, The the multiple we're paying for for a really good franchise in London is franchisor in London is incredibly less than where Domino's trades and all of its other pieces. So that that was kind of a specific opportunity up there. More to the continent, to the macro part of the question, you're exactly right on it. It's it's suffering more now. It's getting worse before it gets better. We see that through various investee feedback, ranging from shipments to Bearings companies to chemical companies, it's getting worse. Like Matt, nah, still, that's a bit scary. And there's there are more things to sit out there. And yet, uh, one of our biggest positions and one of our biggest opportunities in our global fund is Exor, which I mentioned earlier. Exor suffers from two Italy-related things. Most importantly, is coronavirus. So Italy was one of the biggest victims so as its market traded down on its daily coronavirus news so did exor which has the incredible italian heritage but that's really just not what its nav is about and then secondly to the point of your question uh there's always worry of southern europe unraveling first within any any kind of eu malfunction so you'll see spain and italy also you know often trade down when there are worries about all things euro or eu and XOR suffers that as well, but but its main businesses, ranging from Ferrari globally to CNH, which is agriculture in the U.S. and Latin America, you know, these are great assets that are fantastically valuable long term, and they don't have anything to do with Italy or Southern Europe, or I should say, they have very little to do with those things. So again, we we do find specific things to do there, but unlike Asia, we'd say that's in a context of stuff getting worse before it gets better. Gotcha,
0: gotcha. All right, we're going to get ready here to, to wrap up. Maybe just a, a few other questions for you. Memphis, great great city. Assuming we all get to travel again, what's your favorite barbecue place in Memphis that we should hit when we're there?
1: When I answer this question, this means that there will be hit squads sent out by all the barbecue places that I don't name. <laughs> so this is a very dangerous question, but uh, I will go with, I got to give two. I got to give for the larger for the larger ones where you can also ship. So I'm doing an ad for them. That'd be Central Barbecue. Okay. For the hole in the wall, it's got to be Cozy Corner, uh, which I think it was Gourmet Magazine shouted that is one of the greatest restaurants a while back. But that's uh, that would be the most authentic.
0: Well, I wrote that one down. I've, I've been at Central. I've not been at Cozy, so uh, that that is something or some place that I'll visit next next time through. And and hopefully we're we're all out of lockdown here soon, and we can go and support some of our our favorite locales. Hey, Staley, this has been this has been great. I re- we really appreciate your comments on active management and, and, and value. And we're hoping that you are right, and this is not a heartbreak hotel. And you can <laughs> see true returns coming from both those areas going forward. Just wanted to thank you for, for your time and, and for your comments. It's It's been great. Thanks so much for having me. If you are interested in more information on the topic, please go to our website where we will have a list of relevant FEG publications. And don't forget to subscribe to our event communications at www.feg.com backslash subscribe so you don't miss the next episode. Please keep in mind that this information is intended to be general education that needs to be framed within the unique risk and return objectives of each client. Therefore, nobody should consider these FEG recommendations. This podcast was prepared by FEG. Neither the information nor any opinion expressed in this podcast constitutes an offer or an invitation to make an offer to buy or sell any securities. The views or opinions expressed by guest speakers are solely their own and do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of FVG.